Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and and a key contributor at The Dispatch, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis, along with the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can go and use the links provided in the show notes, which are available at any time by going to them for each episode. Finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for me if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading those reviews. In this week's show, we're going to cover the continuing protests and talk about how we've gotten so far afield from where these first started with the death of George Floyd in Minnesota. And then finally, after that, we will wrap up talking about the latest coronavirus numbers and why I'm optimistic that our handling of a second wave will be better the second time around as opposed to to the first. So those are the topics for today's show, and we're just going to jump right in this week. So on the first topic here, I wanted to take a step back. And, you know, we have these protests that are going across all the major cities. They're generally everywhere, although the intensity is not quite the same everywhere as it is in some of the specific hotspots, like places like Minnesota. And so I just wanted to take a step back and sort of reflect kind of how long this has been going because first the really the big first point big flashpoint for this was the video of Ahmad Arbery who was shot by effectively vigilantes patrolling their neighborhood and that the video of that although the event occurred much earlier I believe it was February if I remember correctly the video wasn't released until May 12th and so that began the first real big noises on social media that something was awry. And you have to remember, May 12th was the very first part of when all the states were beginning to reopen. A lot of the first states to reopen, they started reopening things at the end of April, the very end of April, and the first week of May. And so by May 12th, you're either at the end of Phase 1 for a lot of these early states or at the beginning of Phase 2. And also, most other states are beginning to creep along and reopen as well. So that's when that video was released. The more important video that that dropped here was the video of George Floyd's death. Now, that was released on May 28th, so the end of May. And the very next day, May 29th, that's when you start seeing the first reports of protests sweeping Minneapolis. And then in the days that follow cities across the United States. So since the end of May, we've been having daily and weekly bouts of protests, and in some cases violent, and in some cases involving looting. And so we've almost hit this one month here uh, at the end of the week of June 21st. So we have the protests, we've had this whole Chaz or CHOP, as they're calling it now, in Seattle. They renamed it from the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone to the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. Uh, 
I suspect that had that was a, a legal wrangling on their part, because if you're calling it an autonomous zone, you're declaring a set of legal rights that you do not have. Whereas if you're calling it an occupied protest, you could claim that everything you're doing is in some form of a legal assembly. Now, I'm sure they have laws up there that would prohibit that kind of assembly, but if they're allowing it, it falls much closer in under the First Amendment rubric as opposed to just a quasi-secessionist movement as was the autonomous zone. Although they're still quite following a lot of those autonomous zone type deals and there were reports just either last night or the night before they had their first murder that happened up there. So things are going great if you're in the Chaz Chop land these days. But that's also popped up in this one month here that we've had this. And the first thing that you started seeing, apart from just the people angry at the video and marching in general agreement with Black Lives Matter and things of that nature, you saw this shift go from that to anger over monuments. And specifically, there's these videos of people spray painting or toppling monuments. And it started out with monuments of Confederate soldiers or those who were aligned with the Confederacy. So here in Tennessee, that involves statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest. And you saw things like Robert E. Lee in Richmond, Virginia, just statues like that. And that sort of made some sense on a basic level. But from there, they've gone from statues and monuments that either celebrated or memorialized the Confederacy to all Americans at all. We have attacks or and topplings of a statue of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, the American History of Natural one of the American one of the American museums, I forget the name of it now, but they have the Teddy Roosevelt statue out front. They're talking about removing it. We've had statues of abolitionists that have been either toppled or defaced. There's been talk of a statue of Abraham Lincoln that has a petition attached to it. And, of course, there's the Winston Churchill and other statues like his over in the United Kingdom. So we've gone from a talk of, you know, how to reduce, how to fix police brutality to discussion larger of just systemic racism overall and racial reconciliation and equality to now it's just all monuments. It's not... A matter of talking through the bad people or the Confederacy, it would make sense why we would take those away and move out more generic Americans who are worth celebrating. That would make sense, but this has gone beyond that. This is a new cultural flashpoint where they're going after all monuments, and now you're seeing quote unquote woke capitalism step in with talking about brands like Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and others like those. So that's just sort of tracing through where we've gone here. We started out with a brutal killing of two black men, both with either a a racial overtones or explicit racial animus. In Ahmaud Arbery's video, there is, we've learned there's been specifically racial overtones there with the three white men all uttering racial epithets at some point, either during the video or after the video. And in the case of George Floyd, it is straight up police brutality where they flat out killed a man through their actions. So all of that made sense in and of itself, why that needed to be addressed. And so we've gone from that to debates over the name of a maple syrup brand. That is 
a leap, to say the least. And it suggests that we're just either these protests are running out of steam or they're just searching for anything to keep the outrage meter ticked up. And we've moved far afield from where we were at addressing any of the key foundational issues here. I was talking with a friend about this, and she pointed out, you know, that she's black, and she pointed out that all the black people are still talking about Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna, um, I believe it was Breonna Taylor, and just there's several names that have all happened here in the span of about a month, month and a half, who all fit this description of police brutality of some form, where the police have had misconduct, or you get into sort of these these police-adjacent areas where it's law, types of law enforcement. So in the case of Ahmaud Arbery, you're talking about vigilante justice. So it's the way that law is enforced against a certain segment of society. And black people are talking about that. And that would make sense because that is the key issue here. That is something they're talking about. And then when you look on the other side of social media, you see a lot of white people talking about Aunt Jemima and other things. There's a stark difference here, and everyone is talking past each other because they want to go into these comfortable cultural points where they want to talk about all these other things that have far less to do. And it's not that talking about things like, you know, whether or not we need to have some a, a brand called Aunt Jemima, it's not there's not any value there. It's just it's totally ancillary to where we need to be as a society because that's not how you're going to fix something like systemic racism because you have to go and address actual policies like how we use police powers. It reminds me of the whole debate that you see in Washington, D.C., all among mostly white sports columnists about whether or not we need to call the Washington Redskins the Redskins. They've done countless polls of this, and Native Americans do not care. Ninety-plus percent of Native Americans do not care what the Washington Redskins are called at all. And they would go on, if you go into the same those same polls, you can find how Native Americans would identify many other areas that they think are far more important. The name of the Washington Redskins is not one of those important areas. Does that mean it's not worth talking about? No, but it's also not important. And Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, those types of things, those are not important as to where we are now, we need to address things like police reform, ending police unions, ending teachers' unions along with that, just ending public sector unions in general. That needs to be a thing that needs to happen. And other worthwhile reforms that we can implement to fix these problems of police reform. Because if all you do is address these cultural issues and never touch things like police reform, nothing is going to change. And we've done this several times. We keep doing this. And I was thinking about this. Why are we doing this? Because the last time we had one of these major flashpoints, it was at a church in South Carolina where Dylan Roof went in and shot up multiple people in a black church. And our response to that ended up being that Nikki Haley took down Confederate flags on state property. Okay. Sure, that, that may be worthwhile, but that does not fix the underlying problems. We had a similar type of aid after the Charlottesville episode when you had white nationalists and Antifa first meet in the streets there and you had all of the violence there. 
We had a discussion about monuments afterwards. We did not have a discussion of actual policies that would go forth and help fix some of these things. We do this every time, and it suggests that we're just not serious about this. And while we're not serious about it, I think there's, there's a couple of reasons that we're not serious about this. One, we, we prefer these cultural battles. Two, when you get conservatives involved on issues of race, they're often afraid to talk about such issues because they don't know how to or they just don't want to. It's usually one of those two things. And I think that needs to change very much so because conservative ideology has ways it can answer some of these problems directly. And, you know, doing things like ending qualified immunity, ending public sector unions, making policing more of a, you know, a local thing instead of these, where you have more community buy-in, that is fundamentally a conservative idea. It is not something that you would find in liberalism or progressivism right now, which seeks to centralize all power, including police power. So conservatives do need to step up and address this because there are unique ways that conservatives view the, the interaction between government you know, state power and individuals that makes them better equipped to handle these types of situations. The other reason that I think we fall back on these useless cultural items is that it suggests that there's a bankruptcy, an intellectual bankruptcy on the left, but specifically among progressives and liberals, regarding ideas on how to fix issues which they deem are systemic racism, because they are the ones who have been in charge of these major cities for at least the half last half century. And they have been the one deciding all of this. And so if you say that these urban centers have problems of systemic racism that are that permeate the power structures of these cities, you have to ask who built those systems. And for your average progressive or liberal, they have always wanted to centralize power in major power structures. And so they are the ones who are accountable for what has happened in these systems. And so when you make that accusation, they have to come face to face with the fact that their ideas and their systems have failed and failed in spectacular fashion in some cases. And so that's why I think you're seeing this push among them. They've effectively given up. And so now we've gone full on from, you know, maybe a few small issues to let's talk about these cultural issues or let's talk about defund the police. It's these two extremes. We're either just going to leave it all together and go talk culture war or we're going to go talk about defunding the police. And then we can define that as however we want to. And that, ha- that, that matters when you do that because it effectively means that they've given up on trying to solve anything here because it's, it's effectively a tacit admission that there is failure here. They don't have an answer and they don't particularly want to talk about it, even though they would agree because part of their constituency is the black community. They would agree with them, but there is systemic racism here that must be addressed. And so if there is this level of failure here, that is why I believe fundamentally that conservatives and libertarians must step in here and attempt to lead in these situations and provide these solutions because there is no solution. There are no ideas coming out from the left where they believe that they have the answers to this. Now, you will find policy wonks on the left who will say this, but you're not seeing it from Democratic 
leadership. You may see them talk about in Congress about doing this, that, or the other. But as far as hitting some of the key structures, like ending a police union or ending a teacher's union, things like that, they are queasy when it comes to that because those are areas where the Democratic Party has strong support. So they do not want to look at something that would be the sacred cow. Nor do they usually think in terms of decentralizing power and moving power away from these, you know, these large police forces and into communities. So there is a sense here that there is so much failure on one side of it that they don't want to talk about it either, just for different reasons than conservatism. So everybody's fleeing to these cultural points that are far more comfortable, and because they don't matter, we can argue about them left and right and fall back into a familiar back and forth. So I believe conservatives have ideas here. They need to get them out. And I believe that the left needs to admit that there are some failures here and be willing to listen to those out because conservatives just don't hold power in these cities. And so it's harder for them to push some of these reforms. So that's where we... That's where we are, excuse me. And... I believe there's a path forward here. It's just that no one is pursuing it. And if you're not going to pursue this long term, it's going to lead to broader unrest because people are going to look at these cities and at these institutions as failures. And what they perceive as failures, they will see them as losing legitimacy, which challenges whether or not these these political institutions should exist Overall, so I see it as a vital thing that these thing, the these cities, the institutions, these police departments get not only just backed up but fixed, so that they can go in and correctly police their communities. Because you cannot have a modern society without a police department; it's just not possible. You have to have these brave men and women going out and enforcing the laws that are passed by state and local legislative bodies. So you have to have that. That is the how. That's how an ordered side society is supposed to work. So those are my thoughts there. When we get back from the break, we will talk through the coronavirus. So here are the coronavirus top line numbers for the week ending Sunday, June 21st, 2020. The total number of tests run in the United States are 27 million this week. New to that number are 3.5 million, so we've run 3.5 million tests over the past seven days. Importantly, three out of the last seven days have seen testing numbers go above 500,000 tests. One of those days was 518,000, and then Friday we saw 578,000 tests. And Saturday saw 584,000 tests. So nearly two of those days, we nearly hit 600,000 tests. And so if you average out the week, we're looking at around 500,000 tests in a given given day. So that is a phenomenal number that we're seeing so far. We continue to see progress. We're, We're well over 3 million tests a week. I think we're going to start pushing 4 million tests we could potentially get closer to 5 million tests in a week, which would be an astonishing number. We are still slowly moving up our overall testing rates each and every day. Now, of course, in those testing numbers, the important part is how many of those tests are positive. 
So overall, there are 2.2 million tests that come out as positive for the coronavirus. If you look at a seven-day moving average of the positive rate of, you know, how many tests are coming back positive, we are still near our all-time lows on this. Only 5.1% of all tests in the United States are coming back positive. That is a slight tick up. We were due to tick down below the 5% mark before a couple weeks ago, so we're seeing it tick back up just a little bit, but we're still near those all-time lows. Now, we're also testing a lot more. So 5% out of a ton more testing still means that we're going to see a lot of cases, just sheer number of volume of cases coming out. So the case numbers, which you're seeing a lot of media outlets talking about, are up. But this is occurring when we're also testing a lot more people. And so we are getting more results, but we're also getting a lot more negatives in the process. So we are uncovering a lot more cases, and that means our case numbers are up, but that is not necessarily a bad thing because the key thing here is that hospitalizations continue to drop. So the overall number of people we have in our hospitals are dropping, and the death rate continues to drop and slow down. So right now, all we have are a spike in the overall number of cases, but not necessarily an increase in the number of hospitalizations and deaths. Now, the thing to remember here is that hospitalizations and deaths are a lagging indicator into how severe the type of virus that you have going around. So we're going to continue to see hospitalizations and deaths, but it does not necessarily mean we're going to see them at the same rate that we were seeing them before. Now, this could be for a couple of reasons. It could be because the virus is only infecting younger people whose immune systems have shown a greater propensity for defeating it. It could mean that we have a weaker strain of the virus that is moving around the country instead of the stronger version that first arrived in the States. It could be for any number of reasons. But the key point here is that high case numbers are fine. You can have high case numbers if your hospitalization and death numbers remain in check. If people are just getting sick, that's not a threat to your healthcare system because crushing the curve, you know, bringing all of that down and lockdowns and quarantines, the sole purpose of those policies is to ensure that the virus doesn't run rampant, cause a dramatic spike in the number of cases that causes your healthcare system to get overloaded. We're not at that point. We continue to see hospitalizations to drop, and that is a good thing. So, so far, so good on the reopening protest front. But you have to watch this. You have to watch first if the positivity rate continues to go back up significantly. Now, what I mean by that is that you, this, you know, talking about 5%, that's not a very significant amount. Uh, in Tennessee alone, we've bounced between 2 and 3% to around 8 to 9% on where our range of the number of, you know, the percentage of the number of tests that are coming in. So typically that's when our bounce around, and that has meant that we have never seen an overload of the healthcare system here. People talk about us having an increase of cases here, but the healthcare system is not overwhelmed. In fact, even with the increased number of cases, where we have more active cases right now than we did during the height of the coronavirus 
lockdowns in the middle of April and early May, the hospitalization numbers are still around the same that they were then, despite us having around double the amount of active cases. So that's just looking at Tennessee. So if that's true for the rest of the United States, then it's fine to have a slightly higher number of higher cases if you're keeping you know, the people who are most affected by this, which are the elderly and those in nursing homes and other places like that, if you're keeping them safe from the coronavirus. So we're below where we were below, you know, the percentages where, you know, things could get worse. So you don't want it going above 10%. That's, that's really where I would say if we, if we go above 10% on the positivity rate on a daily and even weekly basis, that would be a red warning sign just because that's just a significant amount of people. If we stick around the five, even, you know, we could go up to seven or 8%. That is not terrible. You might see some flashpoints in local communities and we can send resources there to help them deal with it, but you're not going to see a need at that type of number for widespread shutdowns and lockdowns. So, I kept I've been saying pretty much for the last since so since the protest kicked off at the end of April, I've said that we needed at least seven to ten days to figure out if we would see a spike in the increasing number of cases and if that was from the protests because the protests were a dramatic spike and people just being places around people and doing all the things you don't want them to see if you're an epidemiologist. So we are now effectively three weeks into this. It's June 21st, Sunday, June 21st, when I'm recording this, late Sunday night. So we have three weeks now under our belt of looking at this material, looking at the stats. And so we have to ask at this point, are the increasing number of, 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 of positive cases that we're seeing, is that a result of the protests? And that is unknown at this point. We don't have a good way of using contact tracing or anything to see if these specific instances of spikes in places where we know there are, because they're in, in Arizona specifically is one place you can point out as having a distinct spike right now. It's hard to tell whether or not their spike is from reopening or it's due to some weird local con- condition or the protests there. So everyone has generally edged up in most of these states but we're not seeing a widespread spike, just an overall increase in the number of positive, in the just sheer number of cases we're in. But we're also testing a lot more people. So that's kind of where we are on that front. We don't really know. Because the information is so muddied, it's going to take more time to tease this out. Because we don't know also right now with these with this larger number of cases, whether or not these are bad cases that are going to lead to hospitalizations or even deaths down the road. So there's a lot of there's still a lot of variables come out here. If there had been a major spike, I think you could have attributed that almost solely to the protests, but because the information is so muddled, it's harder to tell right now. So the way the way to look for this is to continue to if these protests continue to if you see if these protests flare back up and you see cases continue to go back up, you might be able to contribute it to that. Another way to tell it is if these protests dwindle, and people stop doing them, and you see caseloads drop, where we have fewer number of cases coming in, then that's going to suggest that these protests did have an effect on spreading the virus more widely. 
The other place to watch here that I think could be in just a, a sort of control sample here is New York, because New York has mostly gotten their situation under control at this point after Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. Basically, you can make an argument that they have de- they have blood on their hands with how they handled it early on, with how poorly they handled this virus when you compared them to all of the 50 states. It's not like New York had a, a special set of situations here. They They just fumbled the ball when it came to dealing with the coronavirus. So now that they are beginning to reopen, if we see any impacts there, we might be able to say, okay, well, if their caseload's going up as a result of reopening, then we could sort of attribute some of this there. If they're not, if reopening doesn't really change their case numbers, then we're going to have to look at some of the other places and see the impacts of the protests overall. There are just a lot of variables here that you have to sort of tease out to figure out what's happening in each one of these data points. Like I said, Arizona is really the lone caveat there here because they truly are spiking. They are going to have to figure out whether or not they're going to do another quarantine or lockdown because their numbers are going up so quickly. And so that is the stake to watch. Everyone else is mostly in line. People continue to freak out about Florida and I and I just think that's without reason because their hospitalization and death numbers are well under control right now. The only way to know if these spikes matter is if you see hospitalization and death numbers go up as a result. If they if they don't, then these higher case numbers are you can just toss them out. They they matter only insignificantly. So the frustrating point here though is definitely the media because especially the national press, they're attempting to run two narratives. And the first one is that the protests are good and they don't count when it comes to measuring the spread of the coronavirus. And the second one is that reopening and the Trump rallies are bad when it comes to spreading the coronavirus. These are two conflicting messages. You cannot, these two cannot be true at the same time. Either the protests and these rallies and reopening are all bad together, or they're all fine. You cannot argue that one is good and one is bad. They're all one and the same on this front. And, and I'll give you an example here. So the federal government says that they lied about masks early on. So Fauci came out and said that they lied about the effectiveness of masks on purpose because they were scared about low mask supplies for their first responders. And you know, we can debate whether or not they needed to lie on that point about whether or not masks were effective. That is a specific policy decision that they made, and it was a specific de- deception that they made that had a reason. And we can debate that, and that's fine. But the media's deception on this front, where they're saying the protests are good and everything, all these other, you know, these red states are bad, Trump's rallies are bad, all these things. That is a conflicting message. That is a conflicting message on a public health front that is causing people to look around and say, well, you can't say both. And so if these protests, if they're saying these protests are fine and we can see people out there who don't have masks, then, you know, why are we even bothering getting these phased reopenings? Because if the protests are fine, then everything else is fine and I can go out and do whatever I want. You cannot send conflicting messages like that. Now, the media is trying to because these are just this is just a clearly a narrative against Trump in this case. 
and I don't really care what you think about Trump, but this is what's driving this for the media. They are against him, and as such, they are providing conflicting messages on a public health level, which is far more wrong than any of these narratives that they're pushing for or against Trump. You cannot have two conflicting messages on what to do on the coronavirus. So I think future academic studies actually will come in and look at this and look at how effective are, you know, America's public health experts, how effective their message was once these protests started happening. Because once public health experts started jumping in on this media narrative, that's where they lost the plot. That's officially where they lost America, and there should this should have been obvious to anyone who knows anything about how to relate how to relate information in the media. You cannot deliver conflicting data points where people are told one thing in one situation but another in another with no explanation as to why other than just rank politics. So this is all just pure narrative pushing by the media and it's it's killing informed analysis of the coronavirus. So this is just where we are. We're going to end up dealing with the consequences of this either way. We're seeing higher case numbers. As I said, the data right now suggests that that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to keep watching things like hospitalization numbers and death numbers to get a better idea. But we're not getting any help here from the media, which is pushing two separate points. So that's sort of the broad overview uh, the next thing I want to talk about here is just if we see this as as we enter this summer and we enter the reopening period here, the real big question is whether or not we have a second wave. Everybody's talked about a second wave in terms of the fall, but in reality, we're going to answer the question right now of whether or not we're going to have a second wave because it does not really appear that weather is the driving factor here, but it, it, it's probably more on the line of temperature where if temperatures are pleasant outside, which means they're typically warmer, you're more likely to be outside. If they get too hot, ironically enough, you're going to head back indoors. So this really appears to be more of an indoor-outdoor kind of thing with how the coronavirus spread instead of actual temperature. So if it starts spreading here, you could see it spread here in the summer without regard of what the temperature is outside. So presuming here for a second that we have a second wave, I would expect a different outcome this time if cases spiked in a second wave. And that's for a few reasons here. The first reason is that we have improved treatment. We have better drugs. We have more hospital beds. We have more tests. We just have more of everything. We know that the coronavirus is more than just a lung disease. Before, we were focusing almost exclusively on how it impacted lungs. We were sticking people on ventilators and the rest. We were ignoring issues like blood clotting, which we've learned is a major symptom for some people. And we've started using, you know, some some drugs that focus on anti-inflammation and blood clotting. And, and as a matter of fact, the United Kingdom, they have estimated that had they used a common drug that addresses inflammation and blood clotting, that more than 5,000 lives would have been saved as a result of using that. So we know more about this virus. We learn more about it every day, and our treatments for it are getting better. So we have a better toolbox and arsenal to combat the coronavirus. The second thing here, we have faster 
testing methods. This means that when we test somebody, we're not having to wait days to learn whether or not they have it and then be able to start treating them. In some cases, there's only, it's about a day, at most three days when we get it. And sometimes you can get these tests out the same day. So we have faster testings and we have more quantity, which allows us to identify where the coronavirus is and keep that person away from others to prevent a wider spread. So those are the two big things here. We have a better toolbox. We just have more tools to attack it with. The third reason here, and this is just slight, but it is worth noting, we do have some, emphasis on the word some, we have some herd immunity in some of these big cities. In places like New York, New York City specifically, where this thing ran rampant, there are more people who have immunity to it, which will slow down its spread overall in the rest of the city. At least you would hope so. And that's also going to be true in some of these other places. It's not like this thing is falling into, you know, you're just like shooting fish in a barrel. It's still that way to some extent, just because there's so many people in the United States. But there are some people who've already had it and have antibodies, and so they will not be spreaders this time around. The fourth reason is that we have widespread knowledge on how to combat this, apart from drugs and treatments. Everyone at this point knows about social distancing. They know about wearing masks. They know about washing their hands. They know more about what to do to maintain good hygiene that prevents the spread of this virus overall. And if people are doing that, it will prevent the spread of the coronavirus. That's why... Convincing people to wear masks is such a big deal. You've got to prevent that spread, and those masks are going to do that. The fifth reason is that the widespread testing that we have, that also means we don't we have a better ability to target small communities, sometimes even just buildings, that require lockdowns or quarantines instead of targeting whole states or whole cities and counties. We can be much more targeted in how we use lockdowns and quarantine procedures. It doesn't have to be a whole, a whole country or a whole state or even a whole region because we know where the outbreaks are. We can flood resources into those areas to find it and contain it better than we could before. So with that, and, and last point here is that we're just better prepared. We have our tools we have more resources, we have more knowledge. We don't have a vaccine. That is our major thing. We've never developed a vaccine for the coronavirus. Part of that is because we've never had a reason to develop a vaccine for the coronavirus. The last major ones would have been SARS and MERS. And because they those ended up dying out and not spreading anywhere else, we didn't have a reason to develop a widespread vaccine. With a disease like this, we have more of a reason to develop a coronavirus vaccine. So I think we should be optimistic that we will get one just because the incentive structure is aligned towards us needing one sooner rather than later. So we are better prepared, we have more information, and we just have a larger toolbox to use with this. So all this together means that we should have better outcomes when it comes to dealing with the coronavirus. We don't have to presume that doom and gloom is the only answer here. That's why a higher number of cases does not necessarily mean more deaths, 
more hospitalizations, and worse outcomes. We do not have to presume that the same thing that happened before will happen this time because we just, we have more ability to respond to this thing. So if we do get the same outcomes, that is going to speak very loudly at the effectiveness of our healthcare systems. But because I believe our healthcare system has sort of absorb the lessons from this first run here, the first wave, it should be able to turn around and learn from what it, everything that happened the first time and have a more effective response overall. So that is the positive note that we'll end on this week for the show. That's all I've got for this week. So questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. You can look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. Make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode. 